0: All right, Eversley, get up out of that trench. Don't forget, I'm six foot five. That doesn't worry me. Casanova. Uh, <laughs> Hello. Eleven foot three. I'm too tall. <laughs> I'm too tall. Danielle. <laughs> Eleven foot six. Damn you. Abdul, fifteen foot four. Mustafa, nineteen foot three. Damn
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast. Hi, my name is Andy and I am, uh, well, I don't say that, I say hi and welcome to a new episode of Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy and I am here as always with my co-host Anthony, Boys Night Participant Maddox. Boys Night? Boys Night? My wife Hillary is in Miami, we're just going to do boy stuff. We're going to get boy dinner, aka pizza, uh, maybe play some magic, maybe play some GeoGuessr, I don't know what you're up for, but it's just a classic Boys Night. Great. Looking forward to it. <laughs> it is weird how different it feels. On the rare occasion that Hillary is out of the house, I do mm-hmm. feel a little bit like my teen self. where I'm like, I can do whatever I want. I can stay up as late as I mm-hmm. want. Yeah. Not that she makes me go to... Play, she, obviously, she lets games. me do whatever I want, but I just feel like, oh, I'm I'm free. But first, Anthony, before we earn Boys Night treats, we have to go into the podcast mine and sling some content for those sick little piggies out there that are thirsty for the content And this week in the show, we are talking about, I mentioned something on the show a few episodes back when we were talking about Murders at Karlov Manor, and specifically Long Goodbye, where I said I didn't want my removal spells to be uncounterable. And it's been a couple weeks, but this caused a little bit of a stir on the MPG Cube Talk Discord, and some people thought this was a fundamentally conflicted or like hypocritical view and i really want to unpack that because we ended up having a long conversation about it on there and i think some interesting things came to light during that conversation let's just start with what it means to interact in magic i think one of the greatest things about magic broadly speaking compared to other games is how interactive it is you get to do a lot of things that affect your opponent's strategy and to me that's what like interactive means like Doing something with your cards that stops or alters your opponent's plan, as opposed to just playing solitaire side by side.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think in advance of this topic, like, how do you broadly just define interactivity or like what makes a game more interactive or not and I kind of came up with two answers and the first one was exactly what you just said when when your game pieces touch your opponent's game pieces you know it is not necessarily just like two players going you know playing uh I said curling but curling is actually not correct right Uh, drag wingspan wingspan is a great example where your choices don't really impact your opponent's choices are you're just kind of doing things separately or maybe another example in between would be something like splendor where each person is kind of trying to do their own lane of getting towards the gems, but there's a little bit of interactivity where you are taking
1: cards that other people could potentially take. I actually think that high-level Splendor is actually pretty interactive. except most people don't play that way. Yeah, that's fair. Because I know Splendor is actually played somewhat competitively. Interesting. And I think in those contexts, it is much more interactive and much more about specifically taking pieces that disrupt your opponent's plan. But most people, when they're playing casually, are just like, I got my own little thing going on. And it's kind of a complicated game if you're not really invested in it. And so... Too much to pay attention to to also be trying to stop your opponents.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, just in that sort of like nitty gritty technical definition, it's like when the stuff that you're doing touches what your opponent is doing, that's kind of a sense of interactivity.
1: i not touching you. I
0: think the more sort of uh, wishy-washy definition that I thought of is just when your game plan really depends on what your opponent is doing and how much is your game plan changing based on what your opponent does is a sort of descriptor of a more interactive game, where you can't actually go in and just think, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and hopefully I can do that faster than my opponent, but it's really a matter of, uh, well, it kind of depends. If my opponent does something, then I'm going to have to react to that. And I think what's interesting about that is it also allows for cards that don't necessarily look like interactive cards to be part of an interactive game plan, where you know your opponent might play creatures of certain sizes, which means you can attack and block in certain ways, or cards that are not even in play yet like a combat trick can make a, a thing more interactive because your choices might change depending on what your opponent is doing or could potentially do
1: yeah i tried to make a list of all the types of interaction and in magic i could think of and i think the most fundamental one is just blocking yeah and that comes up in almost every game of magic that is ever played and it is at least by modern magic design standards like fundamental to every color in the color pie every game of magic is about to some degree how you can block, and playing a 2-4 might dramatically alter your opponent's plan of attack my opponent every turn, which is, by the definition we've laid out, fundamentally very very interactive. It's not what most people think of when you say interactive magic. Most people think of removal spells, or counter spells, or discard of any kind, or grave hate, or stifle effects, but it also is interactive to just play a blocker, right? That is a very interactive part of the game if your opponent has anything that involves creatures.
0: Yeah, that's definitely how I think of it. Although it does end up feeling kind of weird because if you then imagine, oh, we've played a bunch of blockers, now no one can attack. That is a game state that fundamentally kind of feels less interactive because nothing's happening. But maybe that's more just static than it is uninteractive.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can affect the way you make decisions in a way that is somewhat invisible to actual game actions and still be interactive, I think. Like, changing the game state substantially enough that your opponent has to make totally different decisions might not mean they make more decisions or fewer decisions or different kinds of decisions, but that is still interacting with that decision space in a way that I think is meaningful. So anyway, we got that basic interaction, and we've recorded a lot of episodes about that kind of interaction, the more obvious kind of interaction. There are two specifically, maybe even three, I can't remember how many we've done in that series, that I will all... I'll like all in the show notes that we did deep dives on the density, and types of removal and interaction we include in our cubes, and why. Now, for all the things that are fundamentally interactive, there are also things that I think limit interaction. And this is just kind of like, take that list I just read down, and just name the mechanic that stops that type of interaction from happening. So, for removal, you've got indestructible, or hexproof, or shroud, or protection, right? That just kind of stops removal in its tracks. For counterspells, you have uncounterable things... And for blocking, you have things like unblockable. Like, that is a thing that does kind of, in some ways, fundamentally limit a certain type of interaction. It says that your card that you intended to block with, you can no longer block with. Ward is also on this spectrum, though we'll get to how I think that's slightly different than the, like, hard kinds of non-interactivity. And where I think people took issue with my statements on the podcast a couple weeks ago. I said something to the effect of, like... Interactive magic is just good, and the more you just accept that interactive magic is good magic in your cube design, the better off you'll be, or something to that effect, and people, I think, kind of rightfully pointed out that by the definition of interactive we have laid out, all those things I just read that limit interaction are also fundamentally interactive. If I have an indestructible threat, that interacts with your removal spell. It changes what it can do. It adjusts your plan because you can no longer do the thing you were hoping to do, which is remove my threat with a removal spell. Same with unblockable, right? All these things that are limiting interaction are also fundamentally in like the very basic atomic description of interaction. They're also interactive.
0: Yeah, a lot of these terms end up just falling apart when you try and analyze them too closely. But I mean, yeah, I think if you just took it to the extreme and said you're not allowed to block, there is no blocking, then it would just be a matter of who can play 20 power of creature over the course of how many turns or you know, deal twenty damage, and
1: there just wouldn't it would just be about the race, who can do that first. So and Mike Flores could never write who's the beat down, because that concept would be useless. Right.
0: So yeah, I mean I agree that unblockable, even though it can advance a game state more, is fundamentally less interactive.
1: Yeah, I agree as well. So I want to propose a small thought technology here, which is orders of interaction, right? I'll define the first order of interaction as Things designed to stop or alter your opponent's proactive plan. So, they're trying to do something that is attempting to end the game. Affect your life total, mill you out, you know, end the game in some proactive way. Something you have that is designed to stop that is first-order interaction. So, murder or counterspell or whatever. We'll come back to counterspells because counterspells can kind of do anything, which is interesting. But murder is the easy example, right? It destroys a creature. Your opponent's creatures are... Game pieces they have put in their deck in order to advance the game state and progress to them winning. And you're just going to now remove it. Second order interaction I'm proposing are cards that are designed to stop your opponent's first order interaction. So we're assuming your opponent's going to have first order interaction in their deck and we're going to stop it. And that's something like True Name Nemesis or Supreme Verdict. Just cards that stop cards that are meant to stop your proactive plan. How's this sound so far? I see what you're saying.
0: But yeah, I mean, I think you could look at those cards in two different ways. You can think of it as a different type of interaction and in just like the very literal sense of these cards have text on them that means something that relates to each other. You could also just describe True Name Nemesis, I think, more accurately as just a very fundamentally uninteractive
1: card. But that is part of the definition, right? The second order interaction is limiting your opponent's first order interaction. So that is how it is uninteractive. And I also mentioned Supreme Verdict. That is also, obviously, a first-order interactive spell because it also destroys creatures, right? So the destroy creature part, first-order interaction. The uncounterable part, second-order interaction. Then you even have things like third-order interaction, right? So cards designed to stop your opponent's second-order interaction, and that's where you get to things like Diabolic Edict or Zealous Persecution to remove a Nemesis. And this, I think, is really important for cube design in a nuanced way because I see a lot of people include cards in their cube like true name nemesis and then say well because i have true name nemesis i have to include all these other cards that answer true name nemesis because i don't want games just to end when someone plays true name nemesis which makes some sense but then also begs the question if you don't want true name nemesis to be unremovable why are you playing true name nemesis right because if you feel like you have to add three or four edicts enzel's persecution and a couple more board wipes and things like that that will actually answer a true name nemesis because you, and I did to be clear, this is the pot calling the kettle black. I had true Knight nemesis in my cube for years and I had a package of cards where I was like, these are in here specifically because I need answers to true name nemesis and cards like it. And ultimately I just realized uh, if this card is not going to be unremovable, then what is the point, right? Is the point just to like pop quiz your opponent and make sure they took one of the nine cards in the cube that can answer it. And is that particular like question a fun one to pose and a fun one to have to answer. And ultimately, I decided that it wasn't for my particular use cases. But I think, theoretically, you could just continue to go up this stack of orders of interaction. And I think it can be fun for a cube to be about that. I actually kind of think the Degenerate Microcube is largely about that. You have a lot of, like sort of layers of interaction and, like, trump cards that you're essentially trying to play that negate all the value of your opponent's cards in a way that I think does kind of level up like this. I even had to, like, cut down on some cards that I think people would probably, in a vacuum, think are very dinky and not that powerful. Cards like Seal of Removal, because I just had too many answers to a resolved Emrakul, and I was like, I want resolving Emrakul to mostly end the game most of the time. That is the point of Emrakul. If there are so many answers to Emrakul running around, like Seal of Removal, then what are we doing here, right? That's just not the point. So in that cube, I had to actually like very carefully tweak and meticulously balance the like levels of interaction there in order to like tune the threats to what level of non-interactive I wanted them to be. Because I do want you to be able to play an emercool in that cube and I want it to be good. I don't want you to be a trap to channel an emercool and then just you first match, you lose to your opponent's solitude, then you lose to your opponent's seal removal, then you lose to your opponent's soul snare or whatever. That's just not fun but this is what that cube is about the cube is about these big non-interactive threats so i think none of this is to say that any one of these methods is like a way to make a more fun cube but i think that a cube can be about different levels of these interactive orders more or less i'm not buying that these fall into a strict
0: hierarchy and i think maybe we're also kind of talking about two separate things where one is like what makes gameplay interactive what does it mean to interact with your opponent and the other is just like the functional, like, what do the words in the cards mean, and how do they behave together? And when you say, well, I have this thing that is unblockable, now I have this thing that can destroy, or um, let's just stick with true name I think it's a great example. It's like, yeah, this card is less interactive, it's removed some things. Now, if you say, well, the removal spells instead of murder, we have Council's judgment, which is this famously confusing card that allows you to basically target things that have hexproof or protection because it's worded in an insane way. People love that card because it can destroy a true name nemesis. And to me, that's not like productive layers of interaction. It's just like a lot of extra complexity and I find those kinds of discussions kind of frustrating. There was actually a, an episode of a podcast that sort of really stuck out in my mind. They were reviewing a, a new magic set for a cube, and in the same episode, at one point early on, they were talking about a creature that was a 3-4, and they were like, this card is great. It's so good that none of the removal spells can hit it, because it's a 3-4, so Bolt doesn't kill it, and all your other variations, it survives. And they were talking about how that was a great feature of this card that made it really good for cube. And then later on in the episode, they were talking about a removal spell, which did four damage, and they were like, wow, this card is great, it deals with so many of the threats in the cube, like, it's such a good card for cube, because it deals with more of the creatures that you see. And to me, that's just kind of like a nonsense conversation, where... Do you want things to be removed or not? It's not really about... like You can't have it both ways and say it's good to have things that are difficult to remove and good to have things that can remove difficult to remove things. That just feels like a a cycle where we're not actually having a design conversation about what is the balance of how much should your threats and answers work together. It's just sort of taking this player mentality to look at isolated local maxima of what makes a good removal spell versus a good threat.
1: I... Kind of agree, though I do think that what you're starting to touch on is something else that I wanted to talk about with this second order interaction because in all of our conversations around first order interaction, right, we've talked about how it's kind of a big spectrum, you can't even really put it into buckets. I've tried to put it into buckets like hard and soft removal, basically for the purposes of just trying to compare and get a rough sense of densities in different cube lists but flame slash is a is an example we've brought up many times where that card kills like, you know, 95% of the threats in my cube but it's still technically a soft interactive spell because if it's got more than 4 toughness then flame slash can't kill it. And I think navigating those soft spectrums is both a lot of fun as a cube designer, because you can really dial it in, right? You get to choose exactly how many removal spells are going to remove things with four toughness and greater, and you get to choose exactly how many things have four toughness and greater, right? That's a thing you have a lot of control over, and it's inherently a spectrum in the sense that you are not putting true and nemesis and council's judgment in, you're just putting in cards that are generic and work in this like much broader sense that you have this like knob to tune over. So... That specific example of like, yes, we're going to add more things that dodge bolt and we're going to add more things that remove things with toughness. toughness, like, it's a little weird to like juxtapose those, but I don't think it's actually fundamentally in conflict necessarily.
0: I mean, I think it's in conflict when you are not thinking about those things as a design system and you're just, in both cases, kind of blindly pushing for this card is more powerful, like it is l- harder to interact with, therefore it is better.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like the conversation was probably mostly just about power, but... I still think that you as a cube designer could be excited to get the right kind of threat that you've wanted for a while that has four toughness and also another removal spell that answers four toughness things like that is totally reasonable to like want both and have a space in your cube for both. Right. For I me. Mean, sure. if, if you take a, a, the argument and extend it extrapolate it a little bit, you can say like, well, why put threats and removal spells in your cube? They just negate each other. Like what's the point of doing that?
0: I don't think that's what I'm saying.
1: (laughs) Well, maybe I don't understand then, right? Like, you're saying, like, you can't be both excited about this thing because it is good against some cards and bad against others, and also this other card that is in the category of cards that it's bad against. That kind of negation of another card is, like, fundamental to the game, I feel like. And there's a lot of that in every cube. Sounds like it was more the reasoning that bothered you, not the actual excitement about the cards themselves. Yeah, Absolutely. The threat can be good if you have nothing better than a bolt, and you can also get one thing better than a bolt and be like, great, now I have an answer to some of those bigger threats. Right, I
0: mean, it just feels like the conversation was all about let's evaluate the power level of cards in sort of a vacuum, and if you had just sort of taken that to the entire cube and said, well, let's bump all the toughness of all the creatures up by one and bump all the the damage dealt by all burn spells up by one, you've actually not really made a change. So from a a whole system perspective, those concepts didn't really make sense to me. Sure. And I think that's a similar thing when you're talking about these orders of interaction. If we are continuing to make more cards more complex to catch the edge cases and override the edge cases of these cards, we end up in a similar space, but with
1: just like cards that are a lot wordier in a lot of cases. Yes, that I agree with. A lot of cube designers, I think, push themselves into these like higher orders of interaction that at least as I'm describing them, because what they're actually fundamentally desiring is base level interactive magic and when you start adding cards that have that second order interaction they have hexproof, they have uncounterable they have unblockable or whatever then in order to maintain the interactive magic that i think a lot of people fundamentally like it or are drawn to you end up putting in answers to those cards to negate that when you actually could just ignore it all together i just not put in any of those cards and have the same basic outcome of you have threats, you have answers, the answers work, and you get to just keep playing Magic.
0: Right. I mean, there's a different emotional experience because people see True Nemesis and they're like, wow, I've played this in Legacy and the card is insane and I mean, maybe difficult 10 to... years ago. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, fundamentally, if you're like, I love having Council's Judgment in my cube because it can interact with True Name Nemesis, can we not also just be excited about, like, Shock and Grizzly Bear?
1: Yeah, and that excitement around cards that are otherwise powerful in like a broader context this is a different conversation right but i have noticed this like escalating effect in people's cube designs where they talk about including these non-interactive threats and then having to also include more answers to them and it's like well when part of the card is fundamentally being non-interactive and you're also including a bunch more answers to it then kind of going back to what you said a little bit about like if the podcast you were describing was talking about this 4 of creature and like its whole value was that it was going to dodge removal then yes you're you're, you're at the like we got True Nemesis and Council's Judgment in the same set isn't that great. And it's like, well, no, you can just right. not play either of them.
0: Right. And there is obviously, there, there's a thing about having more texture. If you play a cube that is all just grizzly bears and shocks, then every threat can be responded to with every answer. There's, you know, sort of a, a degree where the, the game can break down to a very simple... Type of decision making where it's just a matter of do you have more shocks than I have grizzly bears. So that's sort of an interesting space where it's like, well, I want to. If there is a variety of threats and answers, you end up with interesting decisions about how much do I prioritize the efficiency of lightning bolt versus the absoluteness of murder do i want to balance that do i want to balance having a mixture of both lightning bolts and murder so i can deal with both small threats efficiently and large threats absolutely there's like a lot of interesting texture that creates interesting decision space there but i do think that when it comes to a lot of these sort of like one-off interactions it to me gets a lot less exciting and there's a lot less payoff there
1: yeah yeah so what i was going to say is that just like how first order interaction is a spectrum right everywhere everything from dead weight to council's judgment right like there's a spectrum of how much you can answer something i guess everything from unsummoned to council's judgment i guess maybe a better example like unsummoned is a kind of a very soft sort of removal council's judgment is about as hard as it gets there's the exact same thing for second order interaction right because we've talked about how shroud and protection from a player and things like that are pretty hard non-interaction right it just says like yeah your things don't work anymore There are ways to weasel around it in the case of like Diabolic Edict. And I should say, too, if I didn't say it, I want to make it abundantly clear. Where a card falls in this sort of hierarchy is entirely a matter of your cube design, right? And this is kind of what I meant by me having put in too many answers to Emrakul in the Degenerate Micro Cube. It was just like I had put in so many of these answers that no longer was any of that second-order interaction relevant. Like, the fact that it had protection from covered spells... Basically, it didn't matter. There were no covered spells that could have removed it anyway because I had only added edicts and ability-based removal because it got around so many of the other threat's protections. And so I had essentially like cut out a whole layer of that interactive hierarchy by putting in too much of that stuff. But so anyway, just like ward and shroud and protection from a player are like really extreme examples, that you also just have high toughness or flying is a really good example of a kind of second-order interaction, Right unblockable is unblockable. You're not going to be able to block it at all. Flying is a kind of unblockable, as is Menace. And you can imagine a cube, obviously, that has exactly one flyer in it. That card just has unblockable, right? You have just made it exactly as effective as unblockable by making it the only one. So you have control over this with your cube design. It's not that these cards absolutely fall into these categories and can't be moved around. So anyway, there's a whole spectrum of that second order interaction too that I think you as a cube designer should be conscious of and manipulating to produce the kind of games you want to produce. There's a couple of other fundamental differences between these orders that I think might help differentiate them more. So I think very often, first order interaction has an inherent risk. This is something we've talked about in the show before, right? If I'm putting a removal spell on my deck, that card is only good if you have a thing for me to remove with it. And some number of games and board states and turns, you just won't. And then my card doesn't do anything. You know, same goes for like a duress. If you don't have non-creature spells in your deck, then I just... Maybe whiff sometimes, and that's a big cost. Even a top deck to rest late when your hand is empty is a big cost. So, because of that sort of inherent risk that comes with that, with so much of that first order interaction, not all of it, but a lot, but a ton of it, I do think that's why we see very often in Magic things are in balance when the answers are cheaper than the threats on average, because you have to sort of make up for the fact that you are inherently playing a riskier card that's going to make it harder to curve out, because the chance your opponent played threats in the right sequence such that you could answer them in the in the exact same sequence with the same amount of mana is very unlikely. Usually the chips are going to fall a little differently. So you need to be a little bit rewarded for playing those first order interactive spells. The only way to get around that risk is to have like really, really flexible removal spells or like you know slap cycling one onto a like removal spell or something so that it's got a really high floor no matter what. Or sometimes you can staple these things to proactive threats. Like Solitude is a great example of a extremely low risk. First order interactive spell. It's got source splashers on it, but it's also just a very powerful body that is reasonable to play, and you're never like caught with a solitude in hand. Like darn, there's no threats. You just play it out. So anyway, I think a lot of those cards do have that inherent risk. I think that second order interaction very often does not have that same risk because a lot of the times it takes the form of an ability on a threat. And the fact that it's on a threat means that you do get to just curve out. You just get to play one drop, two drop true name nemesis. You don't have to wait for your opponent to play their removal spell in order to get advantage out of that second level interactive ability. You just get to curve out and play those things. Now, no risk doesn't mean no cost just to be clear. So I think for the abilities, you're oftentimes getting a otherwise overcosted body. So, you know, a three mana three, one is not good. But True Nemesis is quite good because that ability is worth something. In some games, your opponent wouldn't have a spell to interact with it anyway. I mean, True Nemesis is not a great example here because it interacts with so many things their blockers, their spells, all kinds of stuff. But if you take, you know, something with Shroud, sometimes they won't have a removal spell for it. And then you're just paying extra mana for the Shroud that you didn't actually need in that instance. So there is a little bit of cost there, but it's not the same kind of like, my card is dead risk that you get from putting. Doomblades blades in your deck and then your opponent just not playing creatures or putting disenchant in your deck and your opponent not having artifacts or enchantments.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think even just the example of flying is a great example where it is, in some ways, it is a less uh, interactive mechanic because your normal creatures cannot block
1: it. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely, I think, fundamentally.
0: And I've actually... It is rare, but I've heard one or two people say that they really just don't like flying, which uh, really took me off guard because it just seems like one of the most fundamental parts of magic, and it's just such an easy-to-understand keyword that many people enjoy. But yeah, I mean, you are usually, the way that the cards are designed is intentionally to say the drawback of giving a creature flying is it's a smaller creature, so you're not able to kill somebody as quickly, and that creates an interesting tension and texture of how you're designing your deck where you're trying to decide between do I want more efficient stats or do I want the flexibility of being able to uh, attack or block with less interaction? And similarly, do you want to have some mixture of Creatures of Flying to be able to block your opponent's Creatures of Flying? So there's a similar kind of arms race between how much do I need to be able to interact with you on this different axis of Creatures that can fly And the sort of end result is if you just give everything flying, that nothing really has flying. So you're in the same place. So really it's about having an environment where you have a mixture of things that gives players an interesting uh, sort of decision to decide what kind of distribution is going to be the most efficient.
1: Yeah. And something we were talking about when we were having this conversation that Parker actually said is Parker was like, we've all played that game of magic. That is like awful where your opponent just has nothing but removal spells. And it's just like not a fun game. And I think a lot of people have played that game of magic. I do think that in your average cube, if you are just kind of designing a cube with modern cards without any like crazy restrictions or like really weird goals, I think the like removal dot deck deck is likely to be quite bad in modern magic because we have so many threats that generate additional value in some sense. Either whether it's enter the battlefield abilities, die abilities, making tokens, just things that are incrementally better against removal. And also it's worth saying that in modern magic the threats are just much more powerful relative to the removal spells compared to old magic. So I think that actually that deck is usually not very good. And the other thing about that experience that Parker's describing which I've certainly had, right? I've been on that side of the board and been like, "Well, I just I'm an aggro deck and you you played four removal spells in the first four turns of the game. How am I ever supposed to win this game?" It can feel bad from that seat, but very oftentimes when it does, it's actually a testament to your opponent who managed to actually draft the right mixture of interactive spells and deploy them at the right time to actually stifle your plan, which can feel bad to have your plan stifled. But also, as the person that is sometimes on the other side of the table, you have to recognize that that comes with a lot of games where they're just not going to draw those removal spells in the right order and they are going to die to your threats. And so I I think you're right that you have to like dial in the kinds of interactions you want your players to have and how you want them to navigate this kind of soft space of how interactive things are and in what way. Everything from flying to shroud, right? You have to decide how you want your threats to be distributed across that sort of spectrum of interactivity and how many answers you want at each level as well. This is why I love Ward so much because I actually run, I think, very few, I haven't done the numbers for a bunch of cubes, but I actually think I run comparatively few second-order interaction things. I don't like things that have protection. I don't like things that are uncountable. I mean, this is why this all started, right? This comment I made on the podcast a little while ago. I don't think I have very many of them. But I do love Ward because Ward explicitly allows... Magic's game designers and also us as cube designers to navigate that space with a lot more fidelity. When you just have threats that die to Doom Blade and things that are completely non-interactive, it's very hard to dial in the kind of distribution of threats you actually want your players to have access to when we start adding in things with Ward 1, Ward 2, Ward Discard a Card, Ward Pay 3 Life. That makes that space so much more interesting and interactive that I think... That's why I love that mechanic so much. I think it's just a really exciting opportunity to have way more fidelity in that spectrum than just non-interactive and interactive. Yeah, I mean I think there's also a huge just sort of like experience and emotional component. If somebody plays
0: a creature with hexproof and you look at your hand full of removal spells and that was your plan was to interact with your opponent's creatures, that can feel really bad to say, like, I I know it's in my deck and I know that nothing can deal with that. When it instead has Ward 2, maybe even if you're In the same situation, maybe you're still going to lose to that creature. Having the feeling of, well, I just needed one more mana. I just needed one more turn to be able to deal with this feels much better than just having cards that feel completely uninteractive.
1: Yeah. And ultimately, this, like everything we ever talk about in this podcast with regards to cube design, I think entirely comes down to player expectations, right? And this is why I'm a big champion for largely ignoring a lot of that second order interactive stuff, the things that limit your opponent's first level interaction, because... If I look at True Nemesis in a pack, there's like a couple of outcomes that are possible for me taking that card in this draft. I take it and my opponents can never answer it, and me resolving it often means I win the game, which means your opponents are going to be complaining to the cube designer that, hey, I didn't have an answer for True Nemesis. What the heck? Like, I can't beat that card. I take it and you do have answers for it, and then I just played, you know, a three mana, three one that just died to your zealous persecution or died to the diabolic edict or died to whatever, which also is not a great feeling and then i might be complaining to the cube designer afterwards like what the heck this thing has from creatures but doesn't even matter here like i kept losing to removal spells that could actually remove the thing this actually come up in my own cube before with a couple of the second order interactive things i run are seasoned Hallowblade and guardian of new banalia both of which are two mana creatures that you can discard a card and give them indestructible and I've had players complain in the past that I had these cards in my deck, and my opponents all had minus X minus X removal spells, and it's like, well, what's the point of this even being indestructible if my opponent is just going to have ulcerates and dead weights and toxic deluges? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a really really important point about expectations
0: because. If you go in and you're like, yeah, I know that this true name nemesis is pretty fragile in this context, so I'm not going to make it. It's maybe part of my plan, but it's not my entire plan. Then you're going to have a reasonable time, and if it gets removed, fine, you'll get past it. And I, I think that's why a lot of the sort of more straightforward interactions just feel more normal when you're like, here's my bear. I know what it's there for, and part of what it's there for is sometimes eating a removal spell.
1: Yeah, because that's what I was gonna say from the other side of it. If I'm Drafting a control deck in a cube, I'm not familiar with, and I sit down against an opponent who plays a True Nemesis, and I'm like, I didn't know I had to have an answer to a True name Nemesis in my in my deck. Like that's a specific card I had to know exist in order to draft something that answers it. Or they play a bunch of indestructible threats, and I'm like, I guess I can't be a control deck without exile removal because I have to be able to get around indestructible. That feels really bad. Whereas if you just avoid all that stuff, or the vast majority of that stuff. Any Magic player that has played more than two games in their life will understand that there are threats and there are removal spells, and if you're playing a threat, it might get removed, and if you're playing a removal spell, you have to find a threat for it, right? Like, there's this very basic contract you enter into about how cards are meant to work that is not upended when you don't have these cards that limit your opponent's first-order interaction.
0: Yeah, I've been wondering about this, sort of this is adjacent, maybe this is not something that we can fully hash out right now, uh, but we've been playing your Neoclassical Cube a fair amount, and something that is... I think very distinct about contemporary magic is it's very much focused on creatures. So we're talking about threats and answers. We're really just talking about creatures. But in a lot of old-school magic, and I think that your cube exemplifies this, a lot of the threats are artifacts or enchantments, and you have separate categories of removal spells that interact with them. And... I think that on one level that's definitely interesting because, you again, you have this decision space where it's like, do I want to main deck this disenchant, uh, which is sometimes going to be a card that does nothing and sometimes going to be very valuable, is potentially interesting. But if you overload that space and have too many different types of threats that have unique answers, then it just becomes... I don't know, either too difficult to navigate that space or higher variance because you're more likely just to draw or not draw the right threats versus the right answers. I don't know. Does that fit into sort of your thinking about this as well?
1: For sure, yeah. I mean, the neoclassical cube is, it's like on the way to a cube that is almost an artifact or enchantment matters cube, right? Like it doesn't explicitly have these, like well, actually it does kind of have an enchantment matter theme explicitly. There's like one enchantress effect in there or two. So there is kind of an enchantment deck but if you look at something like Uberbear's Bear's Artifact Cube, like that's a cube where disenchants are just like the best interaction you can possibly have. You main deck as many as you can get your hands on. Just the same way in a regular cube, you main deck as many lightning bolts as you can get your hands on because you know you're going to have something relevant to do with it, which is all just a matter of context. So yes, in the context of the Neoclassical Cube, artifacts and enchantments are a lot more important, and so I include a lot more disenchants, and they are much higher picks, and they are much more main deckable, and that's just a factor of that environment that you have to understand when drafting it. So anyway... This is a very long-winded way of saying that what I meant when I said on the previous podcast that magic is good when it's interactive and you should just, you know, when in doubt, just stick with your cards being interactive was that being able to look at a pack of cards even in a cube you're unfamiliar with and understand the types of interaction you might be up against and the types of threats you might be up against without having to consider all these weird edge cases, these cards that have certain protections or certain abilities that make them invulnerable to certain types of uh, removal means that you can draft with a lot more confidence and uh, a lot more clarity around like what the games are going to turn out with and you don't have you have so much less opportunity for those feel bad moments of just being like oh i didn't realize that that's what mattered here and it's not impossible to get around right because i've definitely had people in the neoclassical cube do a whole draft and they get to the end and be like Wow, I didn't realize that I was going to really wish I had a disenchant in every single match. I would have drafted differently if I had known that was the case. But that's such a big category thing that as you learn that, it's very easy to adjust next time. Whereas when you have all of these like myriad cards that are not interactive in various ways, trying to get a player to like wrap their head around that. And honestly, as a cube designer, trying to actually bring that into a sense of balance such that the games do feel like they should feel is way more challenging. So it's not that you should never do it, right? Like, I I do think the Degenerate Micro Cube is in that space. Like, I have had to very much baby and, like, fine-tune the suite of interaction in order to make the decks that are playing to cheat out some non-interactive threat have the right amount of risk and payoff and have the control decks have the right amount of risk-reward There's a time and place for that, but that's a smaller cube. The games are much more consistent in that cube because your decks are so small. So adding like one answer goes a long way, which is not the case when you're playing a 40-card deck. So I have not yet and would probably not try to undertake trying to design a cube with that type of relationship to interaction at a bigger scale. Because it seems really, really difficult, which is why my rule of thumb... Easy advice, absent any other context to somebody asking, is like, just make sure your threats are still interactive. Like, just avoid that second level of interaction where you can.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking through sort of like how this actually pans out. And it's funny that something that you could do if you love the the play patterns of, I'm going to slam this Emmercool or I'm going to reanimate Gristlebrand and as a reward I win the game because I have this powerful threat that you can't interact with easily you could also just as easily achieve that with much lower power cards and say, well I'm going to only have removal spells that deal 5 damage, and I'm going to like nothing Colossal more than that, Dreadmaw and I'm going to pull Colossal Dreadmaw in here, and the reward for getting to 6 mana is you get to cast your Colossal Dreadmaw, and it's basically as invincible as Emrakul, and your opponents will be very disappointed.
1: That is a little bit of exaggeration, because there are double I mean, blocking, and block with one thing, use a burn spell, like You always forget about the double blocking. <laughs> well, <laughs> just to say that I think that all the toughness matters stuff which I love so much I Mm -hmm. love toughness matters removal because it naturally scales with the pace of the game and can be very very efficient and can also be a weak spot if you only if your opponent it gives your opponents a way to get around it right Mm -hmm. it gives your opponents a, a lane to possibly you know negate your interaction I love that sort of soft space and it is a lot softer than just saying Ember cool," right? Like,
0: yeah, no matter I mean, what. And I think that also critical that that is, like we said, setting expectations is really, really key. And if you go into this draft and people don't realize, like, imagine it's a Colossal Dreadmill, it's great. People don't necessarily realize going in that both as the person playing it or the person trying to answer it, that this is what the key threat looks like in this environment. They're not going to necessarily have a good time, but... If you either can, like, shortcut that by playing cards people are familiar with or otherwise setting expectations clearly by the cards you choose, the way you talk about the cube and introduce it, then, sure, you can absolutely have that space look lots of different
1: ways and have people enjoy it. So, I went through my Bun Magic cube and your regular cube and did a quick attempt at counting all of these second-order interactions. So, things so, that are things basically... Things that prevent interaction. Exactly. Exactly. Let's start with the bun magic cube. Do you want to just guess? Don't try and count right now. It's too hard. Just, okay. just play the cube a bunch. Just, you know, ballpark it. How many do you think I have in the cube? That... How big is it? It's it's exactly 360, right? It's exactly 360. I'm going to guess 12. I've got 11. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty good at that's, this game that's, sometimes. That's very close. It turns out I missed one. Kithian Hero of Akros has an activated ability to make itself indestructible, which means that Anthony was exactly correct, but... Is that enough of a correction to bother inserting this editing room snippet? Probably not, but I wanted an excuse to tell you that the day after this podcast comes out, it's Anthony's birthday. So tell him how much you appreciate him and how cool you think he is, and don't tell him I told you. It's a secret. That's the day after this comes out, which is February 27th. It's a Tuesday. Okay, bye a couple of these are maybe a little questionable i'll read them down real quick so i have dauntless bodyguard giver of runes mother of runes guardian of new Benalia, seasoned hallow blade selfless spirit i included shark typhoon in here because it's essentially a giant threat that can get around counterspells. that's a little bit shaky yeah it does get around counter spells pretty well and that is a like that comes up a fair amount which is why i included it but it's maybe a little shakier This next one's also a little shaky, maybe just on power level. I included Ripjaw Raptor here. It has second level, you know, interaction, specifically with burn spells. You just don't want to point them at it because it's a really bad proposition, but that's also pretty questionable. Then Teferi Time, Raveler, Abrupt Decay, and Supreme Verdict, which are all kind of, you know, undeniable. So that's my suite of second order interaction, the things that I have that limit your opponent's ability to interact it's,
0: it's funny that Teferi Time Reveler comes up because that is a card that historically you really enjoy. I love it. And a lot of people really do not enjoy for the fact that it is not interactive in certain ways.
1: Yeah, uh, this is a card that... Explain that. <laughs> I mean, I think we talked about it on the show before. I think this card has a big reputation from Constructed Magic because it is a nightmare to play against in Constructed. It like totally warps any instant speed... Interaction, specifically counterspells. It just turns off opponents' counterspells, which is really powerful in a lot of contexts. And when your opponent has four of them in their deck and they're like counting on this ability, then it can be really frustrating to play against because it just feels like I'm a counterspell deck, and if I don't have a counterspell for your Teferi, or I do have one, but you force of will it, then I just my whole deck just doesn't work anymore, and that's really frustrating. I think so much of that distaste for that card is fomented in that context and then applied to cube retroactively because I have absolutely not found in my cube that having one Teferi Time Raveler which also means you're playing blue in your deck probably a decent amount of blue in my experience so the chances you're going to come across an opponent that has a ton of counterspells and also doesn't have other ways to pressure Teferi right think about like constructed legacies that there are a lot of decks that don't have any other way to pressure a planeswalker or remove it except by the counterspell it and then that doesn't happen, and they have no way to, to deal with Teferi or any other threats after that. The decks are so much more diverse in a cube. You just you're gonna have other ways to deal with Teferi. I have found it that it plays like a really, really good repulse, and I I like it a lot for that reason. Get get ready for the comments on this. Yeah, whatever, it's fine. A couple of patterns obviously emerge here. First, most of these cards are white. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of the eleven cards are white to some degree. And the ones that aren't are the ones that were the shakiest, like Shark Typhoon, Ripjaw, Raptor, you know, those ones. Are they really non-interactive? Who's to say? So and when it comes to expectation setting, I have made that a part of the identity of white in my cube that it has ways to push back against the natural interaction of the environment. It has ways to play on that second order of interaction. I think just dropping a... Thrun the last troll or a true name nemesis in this cube would feel pretty out of place because that's the thing those colors otherwise are not doing It's not what you expect your blue opponent to do or necessarily expect your green opponent to do So that's one thing I noticed the other thing that I noticed is all of these every single one of them Except for the uncountable ones are face up, right? You have a turn before your opponent untaps with giver of runes or mother of runes the dauntless bodyguard seasoned hallow blade uh, Guardian of new banalia selfless spirit. They're all face up which means that you are not getting tricked or trapped or like getting a spell unexpectedly stifled because you didn't know your opponent had some something up their sleeve you have a thing information that you have available to you to try and make a play appropriately which in my cube often means that you might have to spend two removal spells to get rid of that Mother of Ruins, but you can know and prepare for that, and you play to a line where you can actually make that happen. Or you play to a line where you get it tapped down on your opponent's turn because they really want to protect it, and you are able to untap and do something important with your turn. So because of that, I think that, like, layer of... That face-up, I think, is really important to me as a design goal, which is the thing I haven't fully articulated until I, like, actually described this kind of interaction as like a discrete thing this like second order of interaction and that being faced up I think is important to my design goals and also being kind of unexpected color combinations is also important to my design goals the other ones Riptor After I don't think is actually very good here I'm trying it out for now but I don't think it's powerful so I don't think it really matters it doesn't really have an effect on the environment because people aren't playing it that much the Abrupt Decay, I've said before and I'll say again, if it didn't have Uncounterable, I would like it more. Like, give me any other little trinket text on that card. Make it Surveil 1 or something. I would like it a lot more than the fact that it's Uncounterable. I'm playing that in spite of a thing about it I dislike. Supreme Arc is a weird one for me. And it's mostly because I do want control decks to have a little little leg up. And that card so strongly signals blue-white control and gives you a like very safe reset button that... Even though it is on its face not the kind of card I do like, because it is the second level of interaction, it is supporting a specific deck that I really care about, and so it fills this slot that I want to fill effectively. Does that make sense in terms of an approach to second-order interaction in the Bun Magic Cube?
0: Yeah, I mean, some of these are—they feel more to like the ward end of the spectrum than the hexproof extreme. Yeah, uh, just because you know people are still. Discarding a card for Seasoned Hollow blade, or they right. can only tap their Mother of Runes once a turn. So there are still ways to interact with these cards. They're all soft stopping. Right, know. right. But I see what you're saying overall.
1: Now, do you want to guess how many cards I identified in the regular cube as belonging to this second order of interaction?
0: I think this is going to be much more variable depending on how you count some cards. I would say overall, fewer. But if you're counting Ripdraw Raptor, maybe you're counting Silver for a Partisan. Uh, I don't know if you're counting stuff like... I will tell you that I like,
1: did count Silver for Partisan as I did count Ripjaw Raptor.
0: Are you counting stuff like Shelter? I mean, that kind of more just plays like shelter a counter for spell. Sure. Shelter for sure. but that isn't isn't That's,
1: that's that... what Shelter does on the card. It like explicitly counters a removal spell, basically. But isn't countering a spell just the first level of interaction? Well, the thing is, counter spells can be used at any level, basically. Mm-hmm. Because if it just says counter target spell, you can counter an interactive spell or you can counter a proactive spell. They're very flexible. But it is not the like textbook use case of shelter your opponent tries to murder your thing and you say no i draw a card with like just below that being uh give my thing protection shouldn't you also count all counter spells i don't think so because, why not because counter spells can do anything when you put a counter spell in your deck you have to you get to decide how you want to use it. When you put shelter in your deck, that's the one way you can use it. The other thing you can do with it is you can keep a two land hand and then try to shelter your
0: opponent's creature to try and draw your third land and then realize you're not allowed to do it's that. It's
1: also... Oh, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> I guess it would be really bad to pop off auras is probably why they do it that way. They yeah. didn't want you to be able to like do that.
0: Target creature you control. I've made that mistake.
1: So I'll tell you, I counted twenty-one. Okay, in the regular cube, I'll I was, li- was going to guess like twelve again. I'll give you the list, and you can uh, tell me where you think I've where I've gone wrong. So you also have Seasoned Hallowblade, You have a Danto Vanguard, which I think fits into mm-hmm. that category as well. You also have Selfless Spirit. I did count White Main Lion here, as again I think that is largely what the card does. Is it? Stifles removal spells we don't have to have the whole conversation about combat tricks and you know whatever we've had before about white man lions and you know having that kind of trump card that like secret up your sleeve that like messes up your opponent's plan that is a thing I tend to not like and you're much more receptive to we don't have to go into that all again but I think it does kind of fit in this category. You've got Shalai, you've got Emerge Unscathed. Oh, Shalai is fully this thing, for For, sure. For sure. You've got Emerge Unscathed, which also that thing. uh, Ephemerate is a card I'm putting in this category, and this also, I think, gives me more language to describe why Ephemerate is a frustrating card for me to sometimes play with, because it belongs to this category. Feet of Resistance, Shelter, Valorous Stance, the Channel Ability on Touch of Spirit Realm, Talarian Terror, Kasmina Enigmatic Mentor, Okay, maybe the softest one here, newscraft Mob? I think newscraft Mob is cool. That's all I have to say I'm about I'm actually going to take newscraft Mob out <laughs> after after saying it out loud. Yeah, you got 20, smart. not 21. Felden, Ronom excavators in the same category as Ripjaw Raptor. Very soft, but you know, still kind of matters. That one even, they both have like kind of pseudo-unblockable as well. So they, I think they do kind of fit in this category. Ranging Raptors, Silver for Partisan, Undergrowth Champion, Blossoming Defense, Snakeskin Veil, and I'm going to put Giant Growth in here too but giant growth again is now the most suspect now that newscraft mob has been eliminated out i'm i'm not sure i'm buying putting hexproof
0: and a protection spell in the same type of category because hexproof is clearly saying this card did what it did before but if we add hexproof it is now uninteractable if i'm spending a card to protect something that's still just a normal transaction of cardboard rectangles that do stuff
1: i see what you're saying that's an interesting point so you're saying like snakeskin veil doesn't belong in this category because I had to spend a whole card on it, as opposed yeah. to it just being an ability staple to a creature. Right.
0: I mean, it's more interactive because, like, you, you can you can interact with it.
1: <laughs> you can do another removal spell
0: in response to my snakeskin Veil, and then you still get one for one interactions. It's
1: definitely softer, right? It's definitely softer mm-hmm. than Shrieking Nemesis or whatever. But I mean, I, I, this is the thing I think it's just different about you and I. You like like to protect your stuff. Yeah, like, I want to be safe. <laughs> yeah, you like to be safe. You like to protect your stuff. Which is totally fine. I mean, honestly, like, none of these Love cards... Love
0: to, to cast uh, Tooth and Nail and get Abyss and Angel of Hope and, uh, what is it called? Archon of Endurance? The thing that gives everything hexproof? Yeah, Archon of Endurance. Just, yeah. just be very safe. <laughs> Archetype of Endurance. Archetype Not of endurance. Archon of That's endurance. endurance. That's what it is. I was like,
1: wait a minute. It's a pig. It's not an it's archon a at pig. all. Yeah, and I, honestly, like, I think you've done a really good job with the regular cube of making sure that all these cards also do a bunch of other stuff. Like, these cards are also interactive with themes and mechanics that you have woven throughout the cube. You have a lot of heroic matter stuff, you have a lot of things that care about targeting your own creatures. You have a lot of things that care about creatures' power and toughness. So Snakeskin Veil is, you know, a thing that just says, Haha, your removal doesn't work right now. But it's also a thing that triggers your heroic and does all these other things that matters for your cube, which means that these cards are still multidimensional. They're not like they're this is all they're doing, right? Where when you put a Triang Nemesis in a cube, it's kind of it's really difficult to be synergistic with Triang Nemesis, right? Like equipment i guess because they can't block it and they can't remove the creature so it's good to put an equipment on it is that synergy maybe uh write in and tell us what you think but these cards you've put in here they're all on this again softer spectrum you have nothing here that's i mean the hardest thing is shalai shalai does give you and the rest of your team hex proof so if your opponent has removal spells that can remove anything but shalai then they're just kind of out of luck but that's not that common, I don't think. I've, I've not seen it happen very often. And Shalai is a big 3-4 flyer. Usually that's what you're going to remove anyway. So I've not seen Shalai be frustrating. But that's definitely the hardest line here in terms of like actual non-interactivity that you include. Otherwise, you and I are both playing in this sort of very flexible spectrum.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, again, going back to setting expectations, if you have this one random snakeskin veil, I can see how that could be frustrating. But I feel like in this cube a player leaving a forest up for two turns is as much a signal as a player leaving up two islands in a lot of other
1: cubes. Sure. And the trading a card thing is interesting. The fact that, in an abstract sense, you know, it is just a very limited counterspell, right? Yeah. Thinking of it that way does maybe change a little bit of my relationship to them. A little bit.
0: Look, if you see your opponent leave a forest up for two turns, just just save up two removal spells so you can really get them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like my my initial reaction is that, like... Counterspells are so broadcast because they're only in one color, at least in my cube. Oh, wait, I guess, are we going to counter a previous or a counterspell? I'm not going to counter previews as a previous counterspell. It's a different thing. But counterspells are basically only in one color, and they are so much better in multiples, right? When you have a deck that can play at instant speed, that can like commit to a strategy. I also love the play pattern of playing my Monastery Mentor and protecting it with counterspells. That is some of the greatest joy I can get from life. I think what maybe bugs me about these is that they tend to feel kind of just like randomly tossed in decks that don't... Want their creatures to die? <laughs> well, yes, don't want their creatures to die. And again, as I've said, you've done a really good job of like making them otherwise generically useful, right? And if you didn't have these heroic themes, I think I would personally dislike these inclusions more. It just feels weird for the green deck to have like one or two spells for specific situations, but... Yeah, it's just all just relative. It's all, it's all it's all play perspective. I mean, this is just, a, this is just to say that like we've we've cataloged all of our first order interaction before in multiple episodes, and so I wanted to just like talk about this briefly, and maybe give it a name to describe how it kind of interacts with our cubes on this episode as well, and maybe with this name we can now have a prolonged useful discourse about it in all of our various cube spaces. People almost always forget about Kazmina. Yeah, that's an easy I one do to miss. I do a lot of reminding people about Kazmina when I have it in play. Did you Did you not count Lumbering Falls, which has secret hexproof? Ah, I missed Lumbering Falls. You're back to 21. Back to 21. Lumbering Falls. I I, I didn't look at the lands. I forgot about the yeah. lands being...
0: Everybody always forgets about Lumbering Falls. Yeah. So, in summary... Man, why have I never tried to put counters on Lumbering Falls with uh, Noyendar, Cube goals. That would be sick. I wish Noyandar was just a
1: little bit better.
0: Like, What if it costs four? What I if had we had just two? make the whole cube around it worse?
1: You could do that. You could definitely do that. It would be sacrificing a lot of things that you have worked hard for and love about that yeah. cube. new cube. Dark cube. I feel myself wanting to make a new old border cube that's even worse than a neoclassical cube as I have to like recognize that some cards that I want to be good just aren't good enough. And I was talking with Alex about this and he was like, can we get like a Shivan Dragon and a Sarah Angel in here? I'm like... That's kind of not really this power level, unfortunately. Like there's another power level that's like where Serendib Efrit and, you know, Juzam Jin are like some of the best threats, and that could be a cool cube too. Maybe someone else in our playgroup would build it, because I don't want to build another O border cube, but I kinda also want to play that cube, you know? Yeah. Slight difference, just a slight difference. But if you're gonna have time spiral in your cube, it's hard to also make Sarah Angel good. Is what I'm discovering. You can attack
0: with it and then tap it to
1: opposition. Synergy. That is synergy. It's true. On that bombshell, that is the end of this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. I'm going to go order some pizza so we can continue. Boys night! Boys night? Boys night! All of our music is produced by DJJ... Oh my gosh, wait. I have to mention this. I can't believe, of all the notes we get from people about this podcast... And all of our like very careful listeners that I appreciate, I appreciate you. No one has ever mentioned that for I don't know the last 100 episodes I have been doing a grammatically incorrect outro. That drives me crazy. What I can't you, believe what have no you been one, saying. I, I listen to uh, this podcast, The Dollop, and the wording of their intro is so poor. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, this is your like. You can take time to write this sentence really well because you say this every week and the fact that I have his outro wrong forever, I say, all of her music is produced by DJ James Nasty. That works. All the Magic Cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. That works. Then I say, the show is produced by Anthony and I talking into microphones. That's not correct. It's Anthony and me talking into microphones. Look, uh, linguistics is descriptive, not prescriptive. And <laughs> Anyway, this show... Anyway, all of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the Magic Cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show is produced by Anthony and me thinking really hard about Magic Cards this and then speaking into microphones about it. Yeah, you've got some passive voice going on there. It's got to be me. It can't be I. Thanks for this. You're welcome. Pizza time.